This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer. And today we have a very special guest in Karen Coyne. Thank you. Thank you. How you doing, Karen? Great. How are you today, Evan? I'm great. Karen is a financial advisor and founder of Clarity Planning. She's been affiliated with Raymond James for a long time. It looks like you were in the business for 20 years so far, 16 years of it at Raymond James. Edward Jones for a little pit stop beforehand. And she's also a podcast host, which is a great podcast. Highly suggest you check it out. It's called Money Without Math, formerly Fresh Off of the Vine. And I think you do a great job and I love the concept of keeping it simple. We talk a lot about things on the show as far as keeping things simple for clients. And I think your podcast does a phenomenal job. So congrats on that. Sweet, thank you. So give us a little background on the business. I saw Edward Jones, it's funny because Edward Jones is a hot topic for recruiters. They're constantly trying to recruit from Edward Jones. You left a long time ago. You kind of left the cult a long time ago. Talk, tell us about your journey from Edward Jones to Raymond James to the start and then and where you are today. Oh, gosh. So I started with Edward Jones. I think my cancel was, I can't remember if I was hired in 2000 or if I, my cell was in 2000. But anyway, I started my career right as the tech bubble was bursting and I had been a client of Edward Jones. And so that's how I started my career there. I had been a client. I, while I was teaching English actually, and I was working on my master's degree in TESOL to teach English as a second language. And I was in Korea and I was just saving lots of money because you had your housing set up and you're making a pretty good amount of money and you're not spending a ton. So so long story short, I had been a client of an advisor at Jones and so had some insight as to what that pathway looked like. My advisor was a woman and her background was also in education. So she didn't come from a typical econ finance accounting type degree that I think a lot of people that are not in this field assume you need to have. So anyway, so that's, I kind of ended up recruiting myself because I was like, I was working for a nonprofit. I was finishing up my master's degree and I was like this. I enjoy that field, what I was working on in education, but when you work for a nonprofit, you're doing the work of like five people and you're getting paid for about half of one of those roles. And I just thought, I don't know that I want to do this for the long haul. So I actually just made a total pivot and kind of said, Hey, talk to me, tell me about this. Now, did you join their office or you created your own? Well, back then, and I don't know what it is now, but back then it was almost unheard of to have a team. I mean, you really, really had to pull some strings. It's the typical shop is a one advisor, one support assistant who is not licensed, like they forbade licensed assistants and you, that's it. Why so do you think, no, why do you no think that was? Why did they forbid the licensed assistants? I don't know. I don't know. There were a lot of things. You couldn't do options at all, like not even covered calls, which that always kind of bothered me too, because when I was studying for my Series 7, I know a lot of people struggled with options, but I actually really love that portion of the studying. And I really was interested in covered calls as a, you know, as a conservative strategy for income-oriented investors. And I'm like, what do you mean we can't do covered calls? Like, I can understand not doing some of the really speculative stuff, but we, nope, couldn't do covered calls and couldn't have a licensed assistant. Shoot. I mean, Evan, back then when I was with Jones, we didn't even have email. So it was really in the dark ages. And when we left Jones, I say we, it was my husband at the time and my father-in-law, they didn't even have advisory accounts. Everything oh, was- Oh, were they, were they advisors? 
Yes. Interesting. So, so the three of you guys left and joined Ray J as an independent uh, affiliate. Correct. So I met my husband through Jones. He was doing a good night with his dad. And so I ended up relocating. I lived closer to DC in Alexandria, Virginia, ended up relocating out here, Westernish Maryland. And the three of us worked in, you know, within a 10 mile radius of each other. And yeah. And then in 2007, we, the three of us left and came together in one branch through Raymond James. Now, how intense was that? Because I know nowadays Edward Jones is very intense when you leave. Were they pretty intense? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they were not friendly and I don't know what it's like now, but when you, um, when you work there, it's very much like it's your business. You run your business like a business. That's the consistent messaging that you hear as an advisor. It's your yep. business. You run your business like a business. But when you leave, it is most definitely not your business. So you you have to tread very carefully. And we did. And we didn't talk to anyone. I mean, we didn't, of course, tell clients. And what people don't understand that are not in this business is they don't understand, like, how could you not tell me? You know, especially the advisor relationship. I mean, it's so personal. Your clients share so much with you and they expect that you would notify them of a change like that. But we had to tell them after the fact, like, that's it's a non-negotiable. We can't do it. There's yeah, it's, you know, that it's interesting because I was I came from a broker protocol firm, and when we left, part of the big decision was, do I go to another broker protocol firm? And what a huge advantage that is when leaving firms is the ability to call the clients and not feel like you're going to get sued uh, to do so. Uh, uh -huh. You know, uh, so the, obviously back then, specifically now, I don't even think Edward Jones is still not part of that protocol. So, yeah, I don't know, and I. <clears throat> I can just tell you it was painful. It was very difficult. And this was in 2007. So we left in 2007. We left a totally commissioned business. They didn't even have advisory when we left. We came to Raymond James and we're like, oh my gosh, I felt like Dorothy and I had left Kansas. And where was I? Where was this magical land where you could have a licensed assistant? You could get a CFP. They didn't want me to get my CFP, Evan. Like, to me, it was like not letting women learn how to read. Like, why wouldn't you want someone to learn to further their education? I just, it never added up. So perhaps things have changed since then. But back then it was very much like, it was very closed, very, very, very closed. And um, so, so like I said, we're at our first Raymond James National Conference. We're going, oh my gosh, this is incredible. People are sharing all these ideas. They've got teams, they've got CFPs, they've got licensed assistants. They've got these advisory options for their clients. They've got all these other options for their clients. And, you know, so we started to go about kind of re um, thinking about how we wanted to do business. So we were moving our business from commission-based to fee-based. So you know what those numbers look like. You're going from a max of like, what, three to 5% to one-ish percent. And then 2008 happened. So it was brutal. I mean, I look back on that period of time and I know it was brutal for everyone, but it was beyond brutal for us because we were newly transitioning our business. We were going from a totally different fee structure to another, which was, you know, the timing could not have been could not have been worse. So talk uh, to me a little bit about you're married. You have a father-in-law in the business. You guys convert over together and you recently said X. And so that automatically got my thought process going. And like your clients, were you guys sharing clients to some extent at the time? And when that break between you and your ex, what year was that when that kind of... So my father-in-law phased out around 2010 and then David, my ex-husband, and I even hate saying X because we get along better now than we did then, really. 
And so X, I'm like, there has to be a better something. Someone said husband to me recently. And I thought that was really funny and cute. But yeah, so he and I split around 2018. Okay. So really, and then I found a clarity planning. So really, I've been saying for the past few years, I feel like I'm new with 20 years of experience, because it's really the first time I've been on my own with a blank slate, with not having other, whether it's a firm that was super closed or with other partners that had different ideas where I've had kind of free reign to direct. The, Have the, you enjoyed that? It's been great. It's been yeah. super fun. So you can use a little bit more of your creativity and the bottom line st stops with you as far as the yes or no that we're going to do this or not. Yeah, exactly. So is he still funny. affiliated with Ray J? Oh, no, no, no. He totally left the business. So oh, the to business. answer your okay. question, we each were the lead on our each of our own relationships, but then we kind of cross-supported each other. So when David left and then when David left, it was fairly seamless and retention was not an was, issue. Yeah, not an issue. So it looks like you have four people that work with you. It's an entire female crew and you're the only financial advisor. It looks like as of today, talk about your support staff, like what they each have a different role. Do they do all do separate things? How's your business run internally? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because this is something I really do like to talk about. So I think it's a little bit different in how most advisors, especially older school advisors that have been around for, when I say older school, I mean like my gen, mm -hmm. who've been around for 20 plus years. I'm slightly overstaffed, to be honest. And that is by design. That is by design because no one wants to work an 80-hour work week. I don't want to work an 80-hour work week. And I know no one on my team wants to work an 80-hour work week. And if I'm recruiting, I mean, people barely want to work a 40-hour work week. And I can't really blame them. <clears throat> so we're a little bit overstaffed to give everyone that time and space and flexibility. And we have cross-training. So Karen Slice is, she's the CSA, Client Service Associate, and she just recently got her Series 7. So she is now a licensed assistant. Yay! First time ever having a licensed assistant. And she will be gradually transitioning to like a support advisor role. And then Patty on the team, she is operations. So she does mostly... I think of her as kind of like project-based. So like she oversees, makes sure everyone gets their RMDs done. She helps with a lot of the charitable. We do a lot of charitable work, QCDs and donor advised funds, things like that. Gifting, extracting out appreciated shares. And then of course, opening new accounts, transfers. And then Laura Stevens on the team helps me with marketing communications. So you as a podcast and as a registered advisor, you know how much compliance there is. And a lot of people will tell me, oh my gosh, Karen, I, I love, you know, your content. I love the podcast. I love seeing your stuff on Facebook or LinkedIn. And how do you do it? This is other advisors. And I'm like, look, I made the decision a couple of years ago to make that. I mean, she's full-time, but she's like 30-ish hours. So it's a light full-time. But she, her role is dedicated to doing all the compliance she does some of the editing for the podcasts, for the clips, like just like you, I record on Zoom and then we cut those into clips for the newsletters. But anyway, so I have a dedicated person just to do that. And that's, it's not because it brings in a ton of revenue. It's just because it's kind of a passion project and it's something that I really enjoy. And I've always been one to just follow my interests and see where they lead. And that's what we've been doing for the past couple of years. Well, you might not have monetized it in the concept of bringing in new clients because of it, but you've monetized it in the concept as new clients come to you and they Google you, they see your content and they know who you are. And I think that adds an extra level of sophistication to your clients 
that you know what you're talking about, which is a good thing. <laughs> so, yes, 100%. Um, you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. And they have a sense before we even meet that they know kind of what the flavor is. You know, they know what they're getting. It's I'm not for everyone. So that's kind of my 2023 mood right now. It's a good personality trait because you're right. I can't tell you how many times, specifically other advisors, if other advisors are hating you and you're successful, it means you're probably doing something right. You're so probably keep, doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea. And as far as advisors, it's like I tell people when they're meeting with me, if I know if they're interviewing other advisors is it's a very personal relationship. It's almost like adding a family member, you know, like you and I are going to have very different ways that we approach. And it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Yeah. And specifically, if you're focused on planning topics such as goals, wants, and wishes of them and their family and what they care about, I, I think, I think the question of clients coming in and not seeing the value in coming in diminishes completely because you're having a relationship with them that's outside the math, as you say. So I think that's a great thing. What I found interesting about you and just kind of Googling and doing my own research is, is that we're roughly the same age. We're roughly been in the business for the same amount of time. We both affiliated, you know, independent, but you're a lot better right now at the LinkedIn next gen, kind of that whole part of the business. It's not an area that I'm an expert in. Matter of fact, I'm looking to hire advisors that are in that next gen age group because I think they'll be more aligned with it. Uh, mm -hmm. But I was shocked to see how long you've been in the business and what you've been doing. Because once I looked at your content and I, I, to be fair, I looked at your content first and I said, oh, she must not be that, you know, that new, that old in the business because she's doing all this content, but you're doing really, really good work and you're actually relating with the next gen. Talk a little bit about what you're doing on social media. Oh, thanks. Like I said, I feel like I'm new with 20 years of experience and so I'm, I feel like it's really taken me this long to kind of find my voice because I couldn't use a voice when I first started my career. I mean, you could not color outside the lines, no ifs, ands, or buts. Like it just wasn't even an option. Like I said, we didn't even have email. <clears throat> then it came to Raymond James, but I had two other partners who you have three people trying to create the messaging. So you have, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. So it's really only been in recent years where I feel like, wow, okay, I truly have a blank slate now and I can kind of talk. And what I really like to talk about is I like to, I think my main thing that I like to talk about is to kind of shine a light on the work that we do as advisors, because there's so much, I think so much misconceptions, so many misconceptions or misunderstandings about what we do. Some people still think that we're all about trying to find the latest hot stock and it's not that at all. It's not even close to that. So I like to share stories and in terms of next gen in particular, there's also kind of a sub agenda of you could be doing this. This is a great career. This is a great career. I think it's an incredible time to enter the industry for the next gen. Like I said, for women in particular, we definitely, we desperately need diversity in this business. So yeah. So I'm trying to speak that into existence. I want younger folks to know that this is a great, I think it's an incredible time to enter the business. You've probably seen the stats about women in particular that are slated to control about $30 trillion by 2030. That's not that long from now. And there are a lot of really atrocious stats if you're a male advisor about the percentage of women, widows, who are going to be leaving their mm -hmm. advisors because they haven't been engaged. And it, the same is true for next gen. You see the stats about how many kids fire their parents' advisors. So on the one hand, I think it's a great time for these younger advisors to enter the business or just non-traditional. But at the same time, our field has to change. We can't continue this kind of eat what you kill mentality, focusing on assets and production, 
I mean, just the words themselves, I just feel like saying them is like, ew, I feel ick when I say some of these words. That is not how the next gen, that is not their MO. When so much of the work that we do cannot be measured by your standard KPIs that we've always used in this business. You can't really measure how you've helped, how you've comforted someone who just lost a spouse or who's going through a divorce or is adopting or the anxiety that you've reduced by helping them corral all their orphaned investments over the year, creating one income stream for them and just helping them feel like, okay, I have a grip. I can see the big picture. I'm going to be okay. And if not, I know who to call, right? Okay. And then you have your chat. You walk me off the ledge. Cool. It's very difficult to measure those things. I think you know, I think a lot of advisors have way too many clients. That's not something that gets talked about nearly enough. And that's all a byproduct of focusing on assets and production and all those, just those KPIs that are just too easy. It's too easy. It's easy to measure that. It's very difficult to measure, okay, the impact that you're making. Something I'm seeing a lot with next gen, like if you're on Twitter at all and follow some of these newer advisors, a number of them are doing fee only. So they're not even managing assets. And that is to say, you can make a great impact. You don't even have, you could have zero assets under management. So I think AUM is just a horrible, incomplete, I'll say KPI. You could be a great advisor and have tremendous AUM. Of course, both can be true, but you could also be a great advisor and have little to no AUM. It's true. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously something that 15, 20 years ago when we were, you know, new in the business and coming up, that wasn't really a thought like, Hey, I can just charge a fee for management. It's interesting. I do want to piggyback on women groups because I wasn't going to hop into this area, but you have said a few things today and I kind of wanted to get your point of view. So on, on the show, we've interviewed many female advisors and most of the ones, most of the ones that are what I would call elder statesmen, which would be in the business for 15 plus years and have a successful practice. Want, they made a key point that they want to be known as the best advisor. They don't want to be known as the best female advisor. They want to, they want to stand out the, the, you know, and then I've talked to some people that are in charge of the groups um, and all these different groups that are kind of popping up. And one of the people that I interviewed last week or a few weeks ago had mentioned that she thinks that older advisors should be involved in the group because that can help motivate the next gen of advisors. And it seems like you're more on that side of thinking where others said, you know, based upon what they produce is the credit they deserve. What are your thoughts on that? Like, where do you scale on the groups? Do you see value for yourself? Do you see value for others? You know, obviously that looks like it's the next gen's path forward. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I think I call myself a member of the leave it better than you found it crew. So when I look at some of my closest friends in the business, they're all givers. They're all along with me on councils where we're coaching and mentoring and just helping make it better for these newer advisors. And I look back on my career and I've been the beneficiary of so much mentoring and those 15 minute phone calls or those, can I come visit your office? Or I'm just lost, especially in the beginning when you're just like, holy Hades, like my life is in a blender. I don't know what day it is. So many people, male, female, older, younger, the gamut. <clears throat> and so many men in particular, right? Just because there are so many men in this business who were no, you know, no hesitation to pick up the phone or invite me to visit, spend a day at their office, shadow, meet their team. 
So I'm very much a part of that group that you mentioned where, no, I don't think it's a, I think that whole eat what you kill mentality, the basing it off those, what I think are kind of old school metrics that drives a lot of women out of the business because it just does not align at all with why we enter the field. I'll, let's just I say thought- like, let's just say like you, you were to take over as, or let's just say you were going to go hire three or four new advisors tomorrow. Uh-huh. Um, how would you compensate? You know, what kind of compensation structure would you set up? It's hard to measure success outside of some of those key metrics because that's monetarily what makes the business survive. So how would you go forward with compensation? Yeah, I'm not the best person to ask this from a like a dollar standpoint, but I'll give you my thoughts on kind of general framework, just because again, I'm kind of starting new, new. And before I was working with my spouse and father-in-law, so it was a whole different ball of wax. But first of all, I think transparency is really key, right? We have to be upfront with people and let them know what the pathway looks like, what the compensation's gonna be look like. Let's just say I bring someone on and they're salaried, and it's a competitive salary. It's not like a twenty-five, $35,000 a year. I mean, it's something, it's a good salaried position for someone who's maybe licensed and has some experience in the business. Um, so let's say there's a base salary and then there is a bonus or some type of structure where they can also earn in just as we do, just as we participate in increases from business and from revenue. So I think some type of combination of you have a base, you're not going to starve. And here's some incentive. And if you do bring in new business, here's the carve out. So if you leave and you decide you want to go to XYZ brokerage or XYZ RIA next week, that's yours. You know, I think there's just too much greed. I think there's just too much greed from advisors who want to bring people on, but they still want the cake and they want to eat it too. And just because we had to take it doesn't mean that they had to take it. Just because we had to start from ground zero with nothing and earn a commission every month does not mean that's what they have to do. And then it just continues because people say, well, that's how it was when I started. So why should you have it any better? No. And I will say, I mean, it, things have gotten a lot better in the concept that salaries even exist for financial advisors because in that, and specifically on the independent space, that is something that my, myself I'm offering and other firms are now offering as part of the package and no longer it be a trail against commission or a, a loan against commission, anything along those lines. So right. I think it's getting better. It's just the, finding the way that you can handle metric that are not having to do with AUM and revenue is still a tough, tough thing. Because I remember at my old firm, they used to bonus us, you know, we would get paid on revenue, but they would bonus us based upon doing plans and doing just making sure you were doing the right things. And they added that in as a deferred comp piece. And I think that was the start of finally incentivizing for the right activities. And, and how do you do those right activities? So I think the interesting thing is going to come along when a group of advisors can come up with a way of incentivizing properly, because I agree with you, because we had to eat what we killed when we initially came forward. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way for advisors going forward. And I don't think it is. So there's certainly more than one way to approach it. I think like with many things in our business, there's different ways you can model it, but probably the key is to think not just about yourself. And I've seen some people do this really, really well, 
where they are very generous in what they offer. They're kind of that next gen to come on board and not just generous with maybe salary, but like with time, with flexibility, all these different factors that are more and more important today, especially after the past couple of years, people maybe want to work remote a couple of days a week or mostly or all um, remote. Um, so yeah, I think there's different ways that you can be generous. I think there's certainly different ways, but it just can't be, it doesn't have to be limited to it's how it was when we grew up. Yeah, of course, for sure. So talk a little bit about your podcast because it's an interesting podcast. You have interesting guests on. You do it once a month, sometimes twice a month. Is that more on just feel or are you kind of organized in how many episodes you're doing and what you're doing? We shoot for twice a month. And sometimes it's how does someone sick or something just ends up getting rescheduled. And usually we've got something in the hopper. So we're ready to go towards the end of the year. We were winding down. I was like, it's just, we're ready to take a break. So we had a little bit more of a lag than usual, but yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate to get hooked up with some really great guests and just keep the conversation going around topics that are just outside the market. I feel like for most people who, especially if they're just getting started, even if they're not just getting started, but like the financial media is just very singular and it's messaging. And it's like the Dow did this, it soared, it, it crept, it, it exploded, whatever. But it's always Market about turmoil turn on at seven o'clock tonight. Yeah. And it's not even tied remotely to these conversations that we are having with our clients on a daily basis. It's so misaligned. So there are all these topics that we want to talk about with our clients, whether it's caring for an aging parent or how to pay for college, how to get the most bang for your buck and paying for college. But you can't possibly cover all those topics in one meeting, or even if you're meeting a couple times a year, like to cover these topics. So that was a, a key part of the why I wanted to start the podcast is to share this information, have these conversations in between meetings because there's just so many, so many things to talk about and so much good stuff to share beyond what the markets are doing. And how many episodes are you in now? Oh my gosh. I knew you were going to ask me that. Gosh, I don't even think it's, I want to say it's coming up on a hundred maybe. What year are we? 2022, just finished 22. So... We're doing, yeah, probably just under a hundred. So you've been doing it for three or four years now. Mm -hmm. So you're a veteran. <laughs> <laughs> Is that veteran for podcasts? I, I mean, the podcast didn't exist 10 years ago. So I would say you're on the veteran scale. I just started <laughs> four months ago. So you're way ahead of the game uh, than I am. Tell us a little bit about management of money. So we talked a lot about your passion for planning, your passion for the business, where the business goes, the next gen. And we talked about Obviously, specifically the passion for planning, a lot of people that the passion is to do the planning tend to not manage assets, but then you were talking about liking covered calls and the ability to potentially write covered calls and do that kind of management for clients. Do you use discretion? Are you managing money personally? Are you using mostly SMAs and UMAs? Uh, yeah, it's so guess? funny to talk about this because... You know, your podcast is obviously geared towards advisors and yep. mine. I never get to talk product because it's more retail. So I'm always like, okay, is compliance still going to make me scrap whatever I have to say? I use mostly managed. I feel my personal philosophy is that in order to really have the time and energy to focus on planning, it's difficult to do that and be a portfolio manager. I don't know how people do it. And I think there's a lot of stuff out there that is appropriate not for everyone. So yeah, I look to AMS, um, mm -hmm. our AMS team here at Raymond James, they do a great job. And I tell clients, it's if there's a change, whether it's the manager, 
Is it mostly SMAs or is it funds and ETFs as well? It's a gamut. It's okay. um, SMAs, um, ETF models, some fund models. I have a number of clients who are interested in socially responsible investing. So it truly, I don't have one cookie cutter that everyone gets. It's truly custom. And if you care more about socially responsible, sustainable investing, your portfolio might look a little bit different from someone says, no, I'm really neutral. I really want to maximize X or Y, or I want to really focus on decreasing taxes. Okay. So of course I have like a handful of go-tos that I use managers, but there's not a cookie cutter formula that I use. Like everyone's not getting the same, you know, X, Y, Z. And for financial planning, are you using Money Guide Pro? We use GPM and then we use Holista Plan as yeah, kind of is, an overlay for the tax. Yeah, Money Guide Pro is a GPM. But yeah, so it's primarily, right, exactly. Yeah. And then for risk assessment wise, are you using any special tools there? No, I've looked into a few that are out there and I've heard, you know, great things from some of the advisors that use them. Um, I, I guess in the question, do you use any of them? I use Riskalyze. I started using Riskalyze about two years ago, and it's a third-party approved software, but yep. it, to me, it's pretty revolutionary, and it links in the accounts, and so you get a real good real-time of their risk. And then it, what I do like about it personally, and I've talked a lot, a little bit about it on the show prior, is, is that most risk tolerance questionnaires, in my opinion, for lack of a better word, are stupid. Um, uh -huh. you know, like, you know, how long do you need your money for? Is it short-term or long-term money? Are you okay with your money dropping by 25%? No. Well, then you're conservative. I think that those were kind of the old school approach. And I think what Riskalyze does that I find very unique is, is it's asking more about volatility and a risk reward profile between you can get this return, but your money's going to be doing this to potentially get that. Are you comfortable with that? And so, right. Um, and I then just, does that lead you to make changes with clients or does that lead them to yeah. say, oh, this is, I'm not in the right mix? Well, I think there's a couple factors there, right? When, when you're doing financial planning, the most important thing is that, that some clients need to take more risk and some clients don't need to take more risk. And so you do have to factor that into play. But I think when, you know, the fact that you're redoing that each year and given this last year, you could have had people that would have answered 88 or 99 on a risk tolerance questionnaire a year ago, a year and a half ago, but then dealt with last year and saw their money drop. And now you give them the risk tolerance and now maybe they come back at a 44 or 55. And so what I think it does is it re allows you to have the conversation with the client of, hey, this is where we're at. This is the risk that we're able to determine. Maybe we don't make any changes today. Maybe we wait for the market to recover, but then maybe at that time, it's an appropriate time to make some changes. So right. I think it allows you to have that conversation and with the client that isn't based on a feel. Because I think for years, financial advisors had to do it based on a feel. The questionnaires were pretty crappy. And so- I uh, Yeah, I agree. The questionnaires are pretty limiting. I think there's always going to be some degree of feel though, because even with the tool- like Riskalyze, and I think that's been part of my hesitation, is it going to be much different than what we're doing now? Because then if a client says, okay, I'm at 40, and let's say they were at a 90, I mean, are they? Or is that just how they feel right now? I think <clears> it <throat> allows you to have the conversation. So it's really a question of having something to having nothing. And, yeah. So, I mean, I, of course, check in with my clients on this question. I do. There's a tool in GPM that mm -hmm. that we use, and I like to paint that scenario. Like, let's pretend it's 2008 again. This is what your numbers could look like. Is that something you can live with? Are you going to be picking up the phone? Are you going to be having anxiety? Are you going to be able to sleep at night? Um, and you know, especially for those clients that have been through a volatile market already, I feel like 
those are the conversations where I'm not as, not that I'm not as worried, but I know they've been through it before so they can maybe better gauge their appetite. Whereas the ones that are newer to investing or, you know, at least weren't with me through that market cycle, that's where it's a little bit, maybe a little trickier to gauge. Talk a little bit about the difference between good advisors and bad advisors. I always ask this question. I like <laughs> to hear the different responses because some people will say, well, there are no real bad advisors. Oh my God. People say, wow. no, there's a lot of bad advisors. And this is what, what could a bad advisor do to change their practice and turn it around into a holistic type of practice? And, and what's like some things that you did in your own personal journey that took you from whatever level you're, you were at to the level you are today? Mm, wow. That's a loaded question. I was just thinking yesterday at the beginning of the year, I've never been a huge resolution person, but I've always been a fan of getting better, just getting a little bit better, whether it's better as a mom, better as a friend, better as an advisor, better as a tennis player, which is taking really longer than I thought it would be better by now, 10 years in. It's just, it's wow, slow, slow moving. But the first thing that comes to my mind about the good, bad advisor is communication. I had a conversation on my podcast and I brought up a stat I had seen about malpractice and the conversation we had, this podcast was geared towards physicians in particular. The podcast conversation was about, you could be the most decorated, acclaimed, celebrated, studied, right? Physician in your given field. But if your bedside manner sucks, there's a high probability that your malpractice is up to here because your complaints are up to here. So we have that equivalent, I believe, to a large degree in our field where there's a lot of advisors who know a lot of stuff and might be great at whatever it is, the tax planning or the investments or whatever it is that is their MO. But if they are not good at communicating, no one gives a crap. So I think communication is huge. It's a huge miss that I think a lot of advisors are missing out on, again, going back to the communication. The other thing I did just remember is the stats. If you've seen some of these stats on why clients leave, it's shocking. It has nothing to do with performance. I think if you ask most advisors, why do you think clients leave? 95%, 90, at least 90% of advisors would probably guess that it was due to poor performance. It's not performance. It's lack of communication. Yep. It's lack of communication. And not just, you know, what we're talking about, like making eye contact. Some clients aren't even getting a meeting because of going back to what we talked about earlier. A lot of advisors have way too many clients. <clears throat> so they're not even, I had a client or a client, a friend tell me during the pandemic, she's like, I'm hearing more from you and your stuff on social media than I have from my advisor. He hasn't even called me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it just, I don't think a lot of people still, even though we see these stats, we see these graphs, I've seen them more than once. We keep hearing these things about people leaving and how much money is going to change hands. And I just think we cannot under communicate the importance of communication. I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think it's something maybe that's lacking is the ability of coaching advisors, not necessarily on practice management stuff, but specifically on how you're communicating with your clients, what words you're saying, how often you're sitting down in front of them, what you're actually talking about, active listening. Like not only when you're listening to your clients, don't be just ready to talk to them, like fully listen to what they're saying to you and how impactful that is and what a difference that can make and implemented that. And like little things that you can implement in to get yourself better. And I, would, I think you would agree with me. I'm not going to speak for you when I say this, but 
I always look at the advisor I was two years ago and go, that guy wasn't very good. Oh my gosh, I cringe. Are you kidding? I cringe when I think about my early days and just Karen today would not <clears throat> do have conversations that, that yeah, no, to, totally. It's, sometimes I think about those early days and I'm like, oh my gosh. This meeting Thank gosh, we're video we're wasn't around then because I would not want a video of those conversations. This meeting we're constantly progressing. Like if you're not progressing... We're, you're getting worse. Uh, Correct. Exactly. Sometimes we have to look outside of ourselves and get a coach, an accountability partner, maybe go through a program like Shaping Wealth to really open our eyes and expand our horizons and get better, especially if you do want to attract next gen and continue to grow. Karen, thanks so much. First of all, thanks for coming on the show. By the way, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how do they reach you, Karen? Oh, sure. So Karen Coyne, CFP on LinkedIn, Clarity Planning, Karen Coyne on Facebook. And of course, through our website, which is raymondjames.com slash clarity. And check out her podcast, Money Without Math. It's great. Each episode's about 40, 50 minutes on a specific topic. I think it's very interesting. And I think you have some great guests on it. And I think you're a great host. So thanks so much for joining us. Like I said, it's refreshing to talk to an advisor that still has the passion and motivation after 20 years of being in the business. Again, many do find that kind of sweet spot or comfort spot and kind of are done progressing. And the fact that it, it, in a lot of ways, it feels like you're just beginning is really refreshing and really exciting. So congrats on everything you've built so far and congrats on the journey ahead. I appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me today. It's been fun. For sure. Absolutely. And for those of you out there, hopefully you enjoyed it. Please like our podcast if you did enjoy it and found value and feel free to send feedback. We always do appreciate it. Thanks so much.